welcome to this gathering of South Canyon Baptist Church. We typically take this time to open God's Word and study it together, so there's a blue Bible in the chair in front of you or around you that uh, you could ask your parents to show you where John chapter 6 is, and if you're visiting with us, uh, we'd also encourage you to follow along as, as we tend to work through passages of Scripture rather than uh, anyone coming up here and speaking extemporaneously or uh, just talking about current events, even though I'm about to start with an illustration about a movie trailer. A theatrical trailer, what's the purpose of those? It's designed to provoke interest in the movie, right? Whether you are a Mission Impossible fan or a Top Gun fan, or any other Tom Cruise movie, or you like cartoons and you're looking forward to the newest Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle. The preview shows lots of action, it shows drama, it shows dialogue, it introduces us not only to the characters but to the actors who will be portraying these characters. And the purpose of a movie trailer is to pique our interest so that we will go and see the movie. In John chapter 6, Jesus, in the first 21 verses, does two miracles. And in those miracles, he does so much more than any Hollywood trailer could ever hope to do. He demonstrates his godness, his divinity. He takes five loaves of bread, more like what our pancakes are like. They were barley loaves, so they were round, but they were flat, like a pancake, and two fish, and he multiplied that little lunch from a boy in the crowd so that he could feed 5,000 men plus all the women and children that were there. And not only did he feed them from this small lunch, but we're told that everyone that was there ate until they were full. And then there were 12 basketfuls of leftovers left. So this little lunch actually ends up being more in its end than it ever was in its beginning. Mark's Gospel also tells us that one night Jesus was going to pass his disciples on the sea, walking across it. John's Gospel doesn't make any such mention of that because John's wanting to communicate a different purpose. He tells us that the disciples were rowing across the sea to go to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, and Jesus was up on the mountain, and when he finished his time there, he crossed the sea and was walking, and his disciples were struggling against a strong wind that had turned the calm waters into a boil. But this was nothing new for these fishermen because they had seen it all before. They grew up fishing on the Sea of Galilee. What they'd never seen is someone walking on the water. Further, that person was near enough to their boat that they could see him in the dark of night. I remember our house growing up. We, we grew up in an old farmhouse. And uh, the basement was accessed through a cellar entrance that was now enclosed in our garage. And so if you did laundry, you had to go out 
what we used as a, a dining room, which was not fancy, it was just an enclosed porch. You'd go out of that house, you'd go down into the garage, go down another set of stairs and into the basement. And so I loved to scare my sister. She was about two years younger than me. And so you would come back upstairs and nobody liked the basement, let's just be honest. It was like home alone, okay? There wasn't a big furnace down there that looked like an octopus, but it was full of frogs and snakes and spiders. It had been a dugout basement that had been filled in with some concrete over the years. It was a hole. So you would come back up from doing your laundry and you would want to get upstairs into the dining room as fast as possible and I would always shut the light off on her. So she would come upstairs already scared and then she would hit the light switch and I'd scare her. Well, one time I was like, this is even better. I won't scare her. I'll just put my hand on the light switch. Can you imagine how creepy that would be when you enter a dark room and you go to hit the light switch and something isn't right? I think that's a little bit about what these disciples experience when we see here in John chapter 6. They see someone close enough in the dark of night in a place no one is supposed to be without a boat. And while they are rowing against the wind and the waves, Jesus is out for a stroll. I think that would freak out anybody in this room. These two miracles demonstrate Jesus' divine authority and power over creation. I've just given you a summary of them. Let's read through these verses as we continue on. Beginning in verse 1 of John chapter 6, this is page 891 in those blue Bibles. So if your parents haven't helped you, let me. All right. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias, and a large crowd was following him. Because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. And lifting up his eyes then, and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? Now what you may not remember... But back in chapter 2, we're told Philip was from Bethsaida, which was a town near where this meeting was taking place. So Jesus knows Philip's hometown is nearby. Philip should have knowledge of all the grocery stores there. But in reality, the crowd was so big that it's very likely that even if every store liquidated every item they had and every home opened their doors to this massive crowd, people wouldn't have been able to eat. Look what Philip says in response to this. Well, sorry, let me, let me give you John's little commentary on it. He said this, speaking of Jesus, for he himself knew what he would do. So we see that Christ is raising a question to Philip because Jesus already knows what he's going to do, and he's doing all this to facilitate a conversation. In fact, to provoke something within his own disciples where they will see the magnitude of the situation and the hopelessness of it, and they will say, Jesus, you're going to have to do something here. Philip doesn't quite bite on that hook, though. His response in verse 7 says, Lord, 200 denarii, that's 200 days of a wage, that much money spent on bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little 
And one of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? So Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, it is I, do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. So here, these two miracles, Jesus takes a small portion of food, he multiplies it to feed over 5,000 people. Now, if that boy was there, we can be assured that he wasn't counted in the men and that there were dozens and thousands of men or women and children along with him. Some commentators estimate that there were, could be up to 20,000 people that were fed from this small lunch. And not only were they fed, each getting a little, they ate till they were full, and then there were many, many leftovers. I'm not talking crumbs here. All that shows us his divine authority and power over creation. In the first miracle, Jesus knew what he was going to do, verses 5 and 6 tell us. But he used this situation because he wanted to teach his disciples to trust in him to provide. In the second miracle, Jesus walking on the water, he comforts his frightened disciples when, by just saying, guys, it's me. It's me. It's like a little child in the room on a night of a storm or in a bad dream, and all they need to hear to comfort them is the voice of their mother. I'm here. I'm with you. Their presence. Hugging them, holding them. These disciples, when Jesus revealed himself, and when they knew that it was him, his presence became the occasion for their relief and glad reception. In these two simple acts, Jesus, he wants to deepen his disciples' trust in him, but it also leads to a, revealing a deep disconnect between the crowds and Jesus. They, as we were to read on, and we read this big portion next or last week, so kids, hey, I'm doing you a solid favor by not reading the next however many verses in full so that you can get out of here at a reasonable time, okay? 
So we see what happens on the next day in verses 22 through 25. The crowds who had been fed had seen, they had seen the signs Jesus did initially, so they followed him into the wilderness to a place where there was no food. They got their fill of food, and the next day when they come back to that same place, where's our next meal? And the gravy train has gone. They now pursue finding Jesus. And when they find him, what do they say? They say, how did you get here? Wrong question. Jesus says, and he rebukes them in verse 26. I say to you, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. These, these people come to him and they say, Rabbi. They treat him with respect. And what happens quickly is that they will then go to argue with this teacher. They wanted to make him a king, we're told in verse 15, but they didn't understand the nature of his kingdom. And in verses 27 through 59, where we'll focus the rest of our time this morning, Jesus has two emphasis. All right? First is this. Eternal life is a greater prize than temporal life. Two emphasis that he will give, and as he does his discourse, we go from miracles to discourse. He's going to talk with them and explain to them what's been going on. He's also going to confront them with the fact that they are actually more interested in temporal life than in eternal life. So here's the first emphasis. Eternal life is a greater prize than temporal life. So pursue eternal life. And the second emphasis is that Jesus alone can give this eternal life. So believe in him. If there's a big idea to this, as I understand it, it's this. For us today, who are hearing these words from John's gospel, it is to pursue eternal life from the one who gives it. So let's look at verses 27 through 34 as we see our first point here. Pursue eternal life. The crowds, they're only interested in physical comforts and provisions. Their understanding of the kingdom of God is that it's going to provide such things. And, and this is based on Old Testament passages where the prophets will speak of the lion laying down with the lamb and it doesn't devour it. A, a child sticking his hand in the hole of a snake and the adder doesn't bite him and kill him. That there's going to be some kind of peace. It, it, it comes from the language in the Old Testament where, where metal instruments of war, shields and swords and spears, are then beaten and reworked into plowshares. A transition from war to peace, from killing to farming and planting and reaping. Where there's illustrations in speaking language that speaks of feasting and stores of bread and wine. And these all illustrate the blessedness of God's kingdom in contrast to what Israel was currently facing, Roman occupation. So these guys... These Jews believed that Jesus, doing the great things he had done, can be no more or no less than the Messiah who would then feed them forever in a human sense. But notice Jesus points out in verse 26, you're not seeking me for the right reasons. And look what he says in verse 27, don't work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you 
for on him God the Father has set his seal. Jesus says, the thing that you need most is eternal life, and I have it, and I will give it. Well, the crowd responds in verse 28, well, tell us then what this work is that God requires us to do. They believe they could meet any challenge that God set before them, which reveals just how far their self-made religion had seeped down into their hearts. These are people who were not living by faith as Abraham was. God said to an old man and his wife, I will give you a son and I will give you a land. And even though he died having received just the son, but never owning the land, he believed God. And now we fast forward a couple thousand years to this group of Jews that come from Abraham who are then saying to God, you set a standard and we will achieve it. You set the bar and we will touch it. They had so moved away from living by faith to living by their own strength, they did not understand what they were even saying in verse 28. They had turned the law into religion of self-made righteousness, the very law that was to demonstrate their weakness so that they would cry out to God for mercy has now become a law by which they measure themselves against others. So in verse 29, Jesus must correct it. He points out that their understanding of works is not sufficient. In fact, they need to remember and understand that God requires faith, not works. So we look at verse 29, Jesus answered them, here's the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. There are a lot of religions in this world. In our day, there's a lot of methods of doing life, a philosophy of living Eat, drink, be merry, tomorrow we could die. That's one way to live. No thought or concern to the future. You just live in the moment. The other, another way is to then spend your life preparing for retirement so that it's cushy and you can travel and you can go places and you can buy things and you can lavish gifts upon your grandchildren or perhaps in God's grace, your great-grandchildren. There's another way of life that says it's just all about the here and now, not just in the moment, but that there is nothing after these years that I'm given. Well, Jesus is standing opposed to that and all other religions by stating that God requires faith in the one he sent, not works from us. This faith must be rooted in the one that God has sent, and the crowds then demand a sign in verses 30 and 31. And not just any sign, but they're saying, okay, Moses gave us this thing called manna in the wilderness, and our forefathers ate of it. So if Moses did this, and you just gave us bread the day before, remember we were about to take you and make you a king until you kind of snuck out the back? So you need to step up the game. You need to surpass what even Moses has done. Now, we're told in verse 39 that all this took place, or verse 59, that all this took place in the synagogue as Jesus taught at Capernaum. So, D.A. Carson, in his commentary on John, he thinks that the Sunday scripture reading, or the Sabbath scripture reading in the synagogue that day, came from Exodus chapter 16. 
verses 11 through 36, where the very story of God giving manna to the people was read. And that's where they brought this up. Either way, whether it was from a synagogue reading or simply the result of feeding the 5,000 in the wilderness, Jesus says, you guys have got it all wrong. Your forefathers did not eat bread from Moses, but from my father. It was God who gave Israel manna, not Moses, in verse 32. And he continues on in verse 33, pointing out that this heavenly bread, this manna, was just a type. It was a, a picture. It pointed forward to an even greater heavenly bread, the true bread of Jesus. Manna perished, but Jesus says the true bread of God endures forever. And it is he, this bread who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. So for the second time in verse 29 and verse 33, Jesus has clearly declared that he is the giver, the possessor of eternal life. He is the one who came from heaven. He is the one the Father has set apart for this. And without faith in Christ, there is no eternal life. So you're beginning to see what Jesus is doing here. He's saying to these people who are saying, what we want to do is just sit here and then you dole out food every day. You feed us. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. You don't need me to provide true bread. You need to understand I am true bread. Verse 34 reveals they still don't get it. Give us this bread always. It's not a confession of faith. They don't say, oh, we believe that you are the one who's come from heaven. And now we want to trust in you as Abraham trusted in the Father, so we want to trust in you for eternal life. No, they are so stuck on the metaphor of food that Jesus has to plainly identify himself as the bread of life. And we see that in verses 35 through 48. This metaphor of manna and bread that came down from heaven was lost on them. So Jesus gets even more particular and more specific as we look at verses 35 through 48. He says very clearly in verse 35, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I, say, I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. He goes on. We read this passage last week, so let me just walk us through it. Jesus says, no one who comes to him will ever not be satisfied. Now, I want to be clear. This is not prosperity gospel. There's a teaching out there that's rampant in our country, and even as our team is going to Africa in a couple weeks, that is rampant there, that if you can somehow manipulate God, then he owes you something that if you have enough faith or you pray enough prayers, that God is going to give you wealth. He's going to give you children. He's going to give you uh, good things in this life. He's going to solve your problems. That's not what Jesus is talking about. Everyone that's in this room that has truly experienced the conversion of faith, being transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, knows what I'm about to say. There is in Christ something that endures. 
that roots you, that grounds you in all kinds of storms, whether they be cancer, whether they be loss of a loved one, a lost job, hardships and parenting, the throes of living in a fallen world. In Christ, you have something that sustains you every day. You have a purpose, you have a meaning, and it's not just that there's a mission for you to do, but there's a relationship that you get to enjoy. A relationship that it removes any doubt that God is not satisfied with you. It's a relationship that reminds you that in Christ you have been forgiven. It's a confidence and a settledness in Jesus that does remove all sense of hunger and all sense of thirst. Jesus uses these terms that we can uh, connect with in order to make his point. That that yearning that you have for meaning in life, that longing that you have for purpose, that hole that alcohol, gambling, drugs, whatever it is, whatever comforts or pleasures, whatever temptations in this life, none of them can satisfy like Jesus. That's his point. And this two-fold repetition of never in verse 36 only emphasizes Jesus' point. When you come to him by faith, you will find that your hunger and thirst are satisfied. Just as the person who's been washed by Jesus does not need to be washed again. It doesn't mean that we can just run from Jesus. Oh, we've got what we want and need, and now we can go and live independently of him. No, we have to stay connected to him, and we are connected. But that emptiness that we once lived with, that emptiness that kept us awake at night, that haunted us when we were alone and not distracted, it's all been filled in Christ. Since Jesus is the bread of life, he invites people to come to him and believe on him. This, these ideas of come to me and believe on me are, are interchangeable. They speak of the same reality of what it means to be a Christian. They express it in slightly different ways. To come to Jesus means that you have to stop Living the old way, your habits, your efforts to find satisfaction. Belief in Jesus implies the understanding that we are trusting in him to meet those needs. To recalibrate us so that the lusts and the desires that we once have, are, are, we see them for what they are. And they no longer have the power over us they once did. John will use this I am statement seven times in his gospel. We see it there in verse 35. Jesus says here, I'm the bread of life. Later he will say, I am the light of the world. Another place he will say, I am the door. And then he will go on to say that I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And he will say, I am the true vine. All seven of these expressions show how Jesus is hinting at his divinity because it goes back to the Old Testament when God revealed himself to Moses in the burning bush by saying, I am who I am. Jesus is none other than God, the divine God, the giver of eternal life. But sadly, these Galileans, just like what we saw back in chapter 5, just like the Jews in Jerusalem who saw Jesus but didn't believe so too these Galileans have seen great miracles and they've missed the significance of them. 
This potential king is not trusted as the son of God. Friend, don't make the same mistake. You're hearing these words today. You can read them in your own copy of the scripture because God has a plan to redeem the lost. We see it in verse 37 when Jesus also tells them that only those who the Father has given to him will come to him. They will believe and they will never be cast out. There's so much that could be said about just verse 37. But I'm going to hasten on by saying two things. First, Jesus states that all that the Father has given to him will come to him. To be clear, this also implies that not all who hear the message will be saved. Those who will not enter the kingdom are those who do not believe in Jesus And that's not a result of weakness in the gospel. It shows us the depravity of our human hearts because these very people, they literally saw Jesus and they didn't believe in him. You're being asked to demonstrate a faith in God's word alone, right? There are no living witnesses to Jesus' time on the earth. But we trust in the word and then the spirit actually produces within us a desire to believe and to embrace this. It's not a human argument. It's the foolishness of the gospel. It's the preaching that Paul speaks of in 1 Corinthians 1. So Jesus says, first, I want you to know that all who the Father gives me, I will never cast out. This is, uh, by saying it in a negative way, he's reinforcing a positive. If anyone comes to me, I will embrace them. All who believe in Jesus will be saved. He will never say no to you, regardless of what you've done. Paul says, quoting from Romans 9, 14, is there injustice on God's part? By no means, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. God's heart is is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And yet, the complexity of this verse also makes us uh, understand that there's a second point. For those who may be discouraged by the idea of predestination, that God is drawing people and that God is calling people and that they are saved through this irresistible grace. And it's not of coercion, but it's of enticement. It's of the wooing of of a lover to his, his, his spouse. If you're discouraged by this idea of predestination, let me just say, I understand the apprehensions that you have, having grown up with that same point of view. But if you look at the last half of verse 37 and elsewhere in Paul's writings, whether it be Romans 9 or Ephesians chapter 1, Jesus states that whoever comes to him, he will never cast out. He will accept any and all who come to him by faith. Romans 10.13 is what I just quoted. Whoever cries out to Jesus will be saved. Now in verses 38 through 40, Jesus says that he will welcome, always welcome those who the Father has given him, and he gives us the reasons why. In verse 38, because the Son came from heaven. He came because the Father sent him to do his will. Second, It's the will of the Father that the Son would not lose any to whom the Father has given him, but raise them up on the last day in verse 39. 
Why is that? Because God's will is that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life and be raised by Jesus on the last day. Verse 40. You, you, if you struggle with the assurance of your salvation, you wonder, how is it that I can believe that God truly has forgiven me of my sins? I mean, after all, I was really sincere when I prayed for the forgiveness of sins, but you don't know the argument that I just had this morning before church? You don't know what I wrongly did last night at home that I shouldn't have done? How is it that I can still be forgiven given the fact that I still struggle with sin and commit sin? Well, look at these verses and let them become a source of your own meditation. The promises that Jesus makes to us are none less than the promises that God makes to us. And those promises are not at all conditioned on us. You have never done enough to earn God's love. You will never do enough to keep God's love. You will never do anything that will forfeit God's love. When you believe that Christ is enough, all of this is yours in Christ. And God says, I have taken the whole of it and I have placed it on Jesus and He is my peace. He is my satisfaction under the law. And so you can look at these and say, that means it is the will of the Father to send Jesus to save me. It is the will of the Father that Jesus would not lose any who believe in Him. And that is all because it is the Father's will that all who look to Jesus will be saved and have confidence of that salvation. It has nothing to do with us. This glorious truth ought to grip the heart of every Christian. You know why? Because God, He is like a, like a moth to a flame. He is holding up the beauty of Christ. And people are drawn to this kind of forgiveness. This unmerited grace. This clean slate that is promised in Christ. This new passions and new affections that He produces in us. And that is a very attractive appeal God promises to cleanse and clothe sinners in the righteousness of Jesus. To give life to those who deserve death. To give mercy to those who deserve judgment. Man, this is grace. This is glorious. But these people, if you look at verses 41 and 42, they don't get it. They, Jesus has spoken very plainly to them, and they still struggle with believing it. This is Joseph's son. What's all this I came from heaven language? He, he cannot be trusted because he's telling us he came from heaven, but we know where he's from. We know his family. We know that he spent time in Capernaum. He's got a home here. How could he make himself equal with God? Well, in verse 43, Jesus doesn't let up. He keeps pressing the gas the Father must draw them to believe in Jesus. And this is, this is the thing that Jesus says, stop grumbling and listen to what I'm saying. In verse 43. And then verse 44 functions as a counterpoint to verse 37. Jesus says in verse 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. Jesus says, no one can do this 
the Father's drawing, like I said just a moment ago, it's not force, but he draws us by attracting us to Jesus. How do you know when God is convicting you to believe in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins? How do you know when God is calling you to do what Jamin did, leaving family and home and his church to go travel overseas and do work of sharing the gospel? How do you know that God is calling you like several within our church will be going to Tanzania in just 10 days? How do you know? God's influence is felt in the mind, in the will, and the heart of the person being drawn. He he attracts us to something that is higher than us. He puts within us this value system that says, your will, not mine, must be done. Your kingdom is far greater and far more important than my personal comfort. I will go. He must increase, but I must decrease. Jeremiah says that this is God's words to his people. I have loved you with an everlasting love. I have drawn you with loving kindness. You see, this is the Father's work, is to so, so show us the beauty of Christ that we are captivated by him. Well, this leads us to a decision. As we look at verses 49 through 71, we've seen that we must pursue eternal life, and we've seen that Jesus is the only giver of that eternal life. And now in these final verses, and I'm going to go through these quickly, we see that our decision will lead to a destiny. Your decision will lead to a destiny. How do we respond to this teaching that Jesus gives? Well, as we look at verses 49 through 58, we see that these people who were hearing him and were so blinded by temporal desires, physical passions, and by this very clear language and this metaphor language. They rejected both of them. It only led to their frustration and ultimately it would lead to their death. You see, Jesus in verses 35 through 48 spoke very plainly to them. He is the Savior everyone needs. He is the salvation for any and all in the world if they will believe in him. But because they reject his plain teaching, he rejects them. And that's seen by him pivoting back to use the metaphor. And we see some of the most provocative language in the New Testament. As we mentioned last Sunday with communion, this idea of eating his body and drinking his blood, without that, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. I mean, this is heavy language. And Jesus goes back to the metaphor, and we know why he does this. Matthew's in his gospel Matthew 13 and verse 13 says, here's why I speak to them in parables. Because seeing, they do not see. And hearing, they do not hear, understand. So in verses 49 through 51, this picture of Old Testament manna, it did preserve physical life for a time, but only Jesus can give eternal life. Only he is the bread of life. And although our progress in the Gospel of John has been slow, We must remember that the opening chapter declared that Jesus was the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now the Jews, in verse 52, what does this mean, eat his body? What what is he talking about? Well, Jesus only amps up his, his game, as it were, 
by making his metaphor even more offensive. The flesh of the Son of Man must be eaten and his blood drunk. And unless this happens, you will not have eternal life. This is absolutely scandalous. In fact, it's such hyperbole that it's not supposed to be taken literally. Go jump off a cliff. Now, I'm looking at Kalen, and I know he and Jeremy like jumping off of cliffs, but for the rest of us, terra firma is where we're comfortable, right? Feet planted firmly on the ground. That is hyperbole. It is not a genuine suggestion. So they begin to argue, and Jesus He then summarizes his teaching. If you look at verses 57 and 58, it almost sounds verbatim of what he's been speaking about all the way back in verse 26 on. He says in verse 57, As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. What Jesus is simply saying is, guys, you're missing the big picture. It is all about me. That that one that was promised in the garden that, that the serpent would bruise his heel, but he would crush the serpent's head, that's me. That greater rest that was promised in the Sabbath, that's about me. The the Old Testament sacrifices that could only cover your sin for a time will all be atoned for in me, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus is reiterating that the Spirit gives life, the flesh is no help. He's making it very clear. Again, what I have been talking to you about is a spiritual truth. I'm using language that you can resonate with in order to make a point. My words are spirit and life, verse 63 says. Jesus is rejected by these people, and not just by his opponents, but look at verse 60. Many of his disciples heard it. They said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? Verse 66 says, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Jesus then flips the script when his disciples are now asking questions, not just his opponents. And after repeatedly mentioning that he came down from heaven, Jesus says, hey, guys, what would happen to you if you saw me go back to heaven? Would that make you believe? It would also prove that their rejection of Jesus is an even greater sin than they anticipated because it means they rejected the one who sent him. So we have in these closing verses men and women who reject Jesus because his sayings are hard. And then as you look at verses 67 through 71, we have those who believe in Jesus for eternal life. Your decision leads to a destiny. In the cross, Jesus' greatest moment of shame is the very moment of his glorification. The Jews had no image, no concept of a suffering Messiah. And so the cross was a stumbling block to them. It was foolishness to the Gentiles. 
But Jesus is reiterating that salvation in Him is determined by the Father. No one can come unless the Father draws Him. And the Father's drawing is absolute. There is no weakness of this. Paul reinforces this in Philippians 1. I am sure of this thing, whether your faith right now, Christian, is weak and it's being frayed at, it's being gnawed at like mice on a rope because of the hardships of your life, hear these words. I am confident of this thing. That He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion on the day of Jesus Christ. It's that image from the Lord of the Rings, you know. Frodo doesn't have the strength to climb that last slope and throw the ring in. Sam is going to carry him. Jesus is your, he is your righteousness, he is your peace, and he will make sure what has been begun by the Father will be finished in you. May your response echo Peter's. You look at verses 68 through 69, look what he says, Lord, to whom shall we go? Jesus sees many disciples stop following him, and he turns to the twelve, Where, what about you guys? I mean, Peter is just, a lot of times he's way off, right? Whether he fully understood what he was saying or not, we know that he does get it. But look what he says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Notice his confession. He addressed Jesus as Lord, not as a prophet, not as a king, Not even as a rabbi who they will then turn on and argue against. Not even as sir, but Lord. And I think it's more than safe to say that this is more than just the greeting of one who's speaking to a superior, a term of reverence and respect. But it's born out of a reflection of understanding. Because Peter says, Jesus, you have the words of eternal life. We believe this. We believe you. And second, he says, and we recognize that you are the Holy One of God. They have no doubts that God has sent Jesus apart. And we can rightly infer that, the on, that, the, that only the Holy One of God can effectively deal with our sin. This is the work that Jesus was sent to do. We've seen a preview of what lies ahead These two miracles show the world things about Jesus. And then his teaching confronts us with, will we pursue him for eternal life? Or will we reject him and choose a different destiny? Only those who believe receive eternal life. So encourage you this morning, pursue eternal life from the one who gives it. Lord God, we thank you that you indeed are our cornerstone, our rock, our refuge, our shelter in a time of storm. You are our peace and our righteousness. And we who are struggling, Lord, whether it's in the throes of parenting or in sickness or whether we are wrestling with these truths from the outsider perspective, I am not a Christian, but these things are provoking me to think. I pray, Lord, that for the Christian and for the non-Christian that's here today, that your word will produce fruit. We pray that it is fruit in keeping with repentance rather than that of hardening hearts. We pray, Lord, that any and all who are here today and who hear this message online 
that they would believe in the one who alone can give eternal life. And they would find their satisfaction and their peace in Christ. That you would build your church around who you are and give us the passion to share this good news with those that we encounter even this day. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen.